You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome to another bonus episode of Turning to the Mystics with Jim Finley. We're so glad you're with us. We're recording this episode on Easter Monday, and it's been a very strange Holy Week and Easter for us all. And yesterday, Easter Sunday, where we're normally invited to celebrate in community, life and the risen Jesus, instead we're seeing on the news some of the worst days uh, that we've faced in terms of death um, from the coronavirus. So in solidarity with people going through this experience, Jim wanted to share an Easter message that uh, will help us reflect on the truth of resurrection, of life and resurrection, so we might ground ourselves in that story as we continue to face this strange time, um, this sad time together. So Jim, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Good, thank you, Kirsten. Yes, um, please, we can have this session together. Um, I thought this session we would round out uh, this series, at least for now, on how to be contemplatively spiritually grounded in the midst of this pandemic that we're all going through, and uh, tying it in liturgically to Holy Week, so how our faith can be that grounding place for us. And um, so I think last time I reflected on Veronica's Veil, kind of the passion of Christ and tying that in poetically. So uh, in this session, I'd like to, seems appropriate uh, with Easter to tie in a, a, a resurrection theme in the Gospels. And this is one of the post-resurrection narratives. In, in the Gospels, there's these, these narratives of the appearances of Jesus after the resurrection. And I'd like to look at uh, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 20 on a post-resurrection narrative. I'd like to look at that. And I would like to say also about this, that this reflection first came to me maybe 10 years ago, and I kind of put it aside, and just recently, in the light of this, just resurrected it. So it was kind of poetic and a little bit open-ended, and so we just hope to, the spirit of it comes through. So you can kind of, in the meditation, you can kind of sit in the spirit of it, and how it might possibly help you. Um, so, um, I think when we, when we read any passage in the Gospels, really, in Scripture, we're really attempting to see not just what the, what the, the narrative is telling us happened in the person's encounter with Jesus, but how the, 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 the story of the person's encounter with Jesus in the situation they were in reveals our situation to ourselves because it's essentially the same situation. It's the same situation, essentially. And uh, so I, I would like to look at it this way. And especially I want to look at it in the light of the pandemic and a sense in which we can feel understandably, individually and collectively quite overwhelmed and uh, kind of just unbelievably so. And the more we turn on the images of the media, we can feel even more that way. And insofar as we've internalized some of our own past traumas and abandonments, what we're seeing now can reactivate those. And, and so yeah, I think it makes this passage, uh, this we're about to read here, particularly uh, potentially helpful to us. How do we look at this in the light of the resurrection and so on? So I'm gonna, I want to read the, the passage and poetically walk through it with you. This is the Gospel of John, according to John. Uh, chapter 20. It begins, verse 1. It was very early on the first day of the week and still dark when Mary of Magdalene came to the tomb. She saw the stone had been moved away from the tomb. So, uh, Mary Magdalene is in a situation then very similar to ours in that she and the disciples were just bereft and beside themselves, that Jesus had been uh, put on trial, 
was crucified, died, and was buried. And still in the tomb, everything, everything on which they had based their hopes were lost to them. And also the times were dangerous times. The same forces that brought about his crucifixion uh, could easily spill over onto them. And so they were sequestered off, afraid, and what are they going to do? And so Mary Magdalene, and very significant about Mary Magdalene, because in the gospel stories that she was a prostitute, and in the meeting with Jesus, she was set free. That is, Jesus saw in her the God-given invincible preciousness of herself. That all, whatever she may have done, just uh, paled in significance. And she was able to be set free from that and having the power to name who she was and see who she was, who she was in the eyes of Jesus, in the eyes of God. Other passages in the Gnostic Gospels of Mary Magdalene and so on didn't see her that way as a prostitute, but they do see her as the beloved of Jesus, and Jesus is her beloved. And I'd like to see her also as a, as a woman who's on a spiritual path, maybe seeking an interior prayer, this deep bondedness of the disciple with the deathless presence of Jesus. She's, that's, she's us that way. And she's us in this hour of darkness. She's lost. And so she comes in this uh, state of mind, state of, in this situation, the death of Jesus. She comes to the tomb, and um, it was still dark, it says. So this is pre-dawn on Easter. And I think the darkness is the darkness of the situation. So she's a seeker. She like, has the awakened disciple's heart, bereft, and she's all alone. There's nobody with her, and it's dark out. And when she gets to the tomb, um, she sees it's been rolled away. And seeing that the tomb's been rolled away, second verse, she came running to Simon Peter, the other disciple, John, the one whom Jesus loved. And she says to them, they have taken away, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, she said, and we don't know where they have put him. So here's the thing, that when we're traumatized, we experience things in a traumatized way. And we have, we have traumatized assumptions about what's happening. And so she assumes, caught up in the pain of the moment, that's gone, that someone took Jesus, took the body of Jesus. And so she runs to get help. So Peter, verse 3, so Peter set out with the other disciple to go to the tomb for. They ran together, but the other disciple, running faster than Peter, reached the tomb first. He bent down, John, and saw the linen cloths lying on the ground, but did not go in. Simon Peter followed him, also came up, went into the tomb, saw the linen cloths lying on the ground, and also the cloth that had been over his head. And this was not with the linen cloths, but, but it was uh, that was strewn about on the floor of the tomb, but, but was rolled up in a place by itself. Now here's the poetic imagery to my mind. I would like to suggest that the configuration of the empty tomb is the configuration of the world in miniature. That is, if we could see the patterns of the world are actually being revealed to us in the patterns of the empty tomb, we would have a better understanding of the situation that we're in. And what is that pattern? First of all, um, he sees the, the, the burial shroud, the linen burial shroud, strewn out on the floor. See? And here, you know, I, I, I can't help but do this because this is what's current for me, relating this to the recent death of my wife here. In, in this sense that my wife died not very recently, actually, and she died right here where we lived, right here where I'm speaking to you, really. And um, so the linen, the linen, the linen shroud strewn on the floor, is right where everything left, where she left it, when she unexpectedly left. And I and I and I can't, in a way, so in a way, I can't bring myself to move it, 
because it's where she left it when she left in a kind of a randomness, a kind of a holy randomness of how unforeseeable the, the, the parting was like this. And so the linen cloth strewn about on the floor is the randomness of the, of the absence of the beloved, which is the Lord. But then it says that the cloth his head was wrapped in was rolled up separately off to the side. One text kind of says it was folded neatly off to the side. Now, I, I, I have to be whimsical about this for just a minute because it sets us to wondering, you know, who folded the cloth? Seriously. Because what you have is an unexpected order in the presence of chaos, of the disorder. Because if I go in and open up Maureen's walk-in closet, she was a very orderly person. Everything's hanging there. The whites with the whites, the blues with the blues. Everything's in order. So there's an unexpected order in the midst of the disorder. See? And we don't know what to make of it. It doesn't make, I, I, to be whimsical about it, it doesn't make any sense to say, did, did Jesus fold it? So he sat up and uh, maybe um, humming a little I have risen tune to himself, folded the cloth. <laughs> I don't think so. I think it's, we have to go deeper than that. Did an angel come and fold it for him? You know, angel uh, telling the angel, please fold my cloth, like a valet. And yes, my Lord, folded the cloth. So we, what's going on here is enigmatic to us. That is, it can't be comprehended that way at all. Something much deeper is being revealed to us in the patterns and the configurations of this. It says then that when the other disciple then went and followed Peter in, he saw and, and he believed. So in that moment, then John sees the empty tomb is for him the belief in the deathless presence of Jesus was his moment of belief. Until this moment, they had still not understood the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. They heard it. T.S. Eliot says in four quartets, we had the experience that missed the meaning. See? So here uh, they had the meaning, I, I will rise again, See? but they missed the experience. So all of a sudden, Jesus, John has this experience, this faith experience of the deathless presence of Jesus in the empty tomb. The disciples then went back home. They leave. And then when they're gone, but Mary was standing outside the tomb, weeping. So she was the first one to get there while it was still dark. She sees the stone rolled back. She comes and gets them. They come, they come rushing, and a lot happens there. They go dashing off again to go back home, and they leave her there. She was the first one there, and she's the last one to leave. And uh, she's, she's weeping, crying. I also think this is a sense of the dark night, like a feeling of uh, being desolate in a solitary way. In the presence of the beloved is no longer present. We can't. We can't know, we don't know where the beloved is, but we're left alone there in the solitary um, uh, and of the powerlessness. Then as she wept, she stooped down to look inside. And I think significant she had to stoop down, which I think is humility. You have to stoop down in humility to look inside. And then she saw something that John and Peter didn't see. She sees two angels sitting there. One where Jesus' feet was, one where the head, like bookmarks, and in between, no Jesus. They said, woman, why are you weeping? I think this is very intriguing, really, because I can't help think, knowing that they know why she's weeping. But sometimes it isn't until somebody asks us what we're crying about that we know what to say. We get so caught up, and I would say it's true of us, we get so caught up in what we're going through right now, in our own life or the pandemic, all of it, we get so caught up, and let's say we're weeping. But that doesn't necessarily mean at all that we know why we're weeping. And so the person who asks, it's like the, it's like the therapeutic question. See, I want you to listen very, very carefully. And where are your tears coming from? Where are your tears coming from? And she tells them, she tells them. Now, but don't forget, though, 
she tells them, but she's still confused. So she's very intimate, but she's right at the precipice of a great transformation she doesn't see coming. And it's going to come in this solitary moment that's so enigmatic to her. See, woman, see why, why are you weeping? And she says, she tells them, uh, they have taken my Lord away, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. She's assuming, again, when we're traumatized, we interpret things in a traumatizing way, so she's assuming someone came and took him. And because I don't know who took him and I don't know where they put him, I don't know, where to, I don't know what to do next. Like this. As she said this, she turned and saw Jesus. And here I think turning doesn't just mean that she turned around. I think on the hidden axis of love, something deep in her soul turned. See? In the depths of her dilemma, she was this kind of this turning on this hidden axis. She turned around and she saw Jesus standing there. Like that. Surprise, surprise. But here's the interesting part. It says, they saw, I don't know where you put, saw, she saw Jesus standing there, though she did not realize that it was Jesus. So here she is, standing there, looking right at the person she's weeping because she can't find. And she doesn't know that the person she can't find is the person who's standing there that she's looking at. So she turns, and like the plot thickens, see? the plot thickens, the riddle deepens. See, the closer she gets, the closeness is still one that just deepens her confusion. Jesus said to her, and he asked, he asked what the angels ask. Why are you weeping? So he echoes. But then he, he fine-tunes the question, and he asks her, who are you looking for? Now here I would say poetically for us, it isn't just that you're looking for the person who first set you free, in which you became the beloved, and I your Lord. But you're looking for the one who saw in you a preciousness you couldn't yet see, and the one who sees us when we're not yet able to see ourselves. That's who she's talking to. And it isn't then just that the person then who asks that question, reveals her to herself. So Thomas Merton says, in the spiritual order, to know is to know that we're known. We might see. In the spiritual order, to see is to see that we're seen. So there's a moment then where she's somehow in this moment, then the grace moment, we might say this is mystical union. We might say this is uh, the union. In a moment, she joins God in Jesus and seeing who God sees her to be, the birthless, deathless beauty of herself in Christ, this deathless presence of Christ like this. See, who are you looking for? And, and therefore, in this moment then, Jesus in a sense reveals her to herself. Because in a sense she doesn't understand it yet, but she is telling him, answers, I'm looking for you. And and then she said, he asked her this, but all the while she said, supposing him to be the gardener. That's really great. How do you figure that? <laughs> I mean, was he dressed up in a cap with a wheelbarrow and a hoe, garden hose? <laughs> like, what? like she just doesn't, you know, this doesn't, uh, she's looking right at it. She still doesn't see it. She doesn't see it. So she says to him, namely, she says to the one that she's looking for, Sir, Mr. Gardener, if you have taken him away, tell me where you put him, and I will go remove him. That is, I don't care what it takes, I'm going to find him. See, which is the lover's heart. She's revealing her lover's heart to the beloved. And Jesus says to her, Mary. She turned around then and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, uh, master. In other words, she turns again. So she turned the first time when she turned. Now there's a turning within the turning, and she turns when he says her name. Because when he says her name, then that's where um, he, he's the one 
who knows who she is in him before the origins of the universe, where the Father eternally contemplated him, her in, in him, in Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and all things were made through him, and within, without him has been made nothing that has been made. And there she sees the deathless, birthless beauty of herself in the calling of her name. And in recognizing her own name, which is who she is in him, which is who we are in him, she says, Master. And I think really that's the union right there. Is it like this? Jesus said to her in the seeing of this moment, and this is almost, we might say, um, in, in a moment where in, maybe in solitude or silence, however it comes to us, this union comes to us. But the God that we're unexplainably one with is the God we're not allowed to touch. In other words, he's not for the having. He's not for the having. And Jesus then says to her, do not cling to me. See, this is just don't touch me, don't cling to me. Because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to the brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. So Mary of Magdalene told the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And it's, and 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 that he had said these things to her. She runs back. Now, I would say this for us, really. He has, he has not yet ascended to the Father, but for us he has ascended to the Father. Pentecost has occurred. So I would put it this way, poetically. It's really true, then, that uh, we know in our heart that if we see the gardener, it's Jesus, or we see in the gardener the one in whom the mystery of Jesus is perfectly present as the mystery of the gardener. If you see your beloved, your husband or your wife, it is your husband or your wife, but you see it's Jesus revealed and given to you in the incarnate mystery of your husband or your wife. If you have a little boy or little girl, the little boy or girl is, is your little boy or girl, but you see that it's Jesus revealed, embodied and given to you as your little boy and as your little girl. And if the beloved is gone because the beloved has died, or your child has died, whatever, you know that somehow the deathless beauty of the beloved is mysteriously present in the intangible presence of the beloved in the missing place of the beloved, uh, because everything real is forever, like this, in Christ, like this. So, we know these things. But in the, when we are caught up in traumatizing times, the centrifugal force of our anxiety spins us out to the edge of ourselves, and we lose our balance. And so what are we to do? I think we're to renew our commitment to, ch to the childlike sincerity of, um, of interior prayer. Because it's an interior prayer, we slow down enough to catch up with ourselves. We return like T.S. Eliot, the, the axis of the turning world. And we turn inward to this, this indivisible place of oneness. You get regrounded in it. Not to stay there as separate from the whirling pain, but to be present in it without losing our balance. That we're to kind of go out and be kind of more clear-minded, more real. That somehow the deathless presence of Jesus is present in the deathless beauty of everyone who's dying today of the virus. Everyone dying today of the virus, the deathless presence of Jesus is present in them and the deathless beauty of their self and their death. And all the people on the front lines that are helping them at their own risk is the deathless presence of Jesus. My oldest daughter, who's a hospice nurse, is in the hospital exposed to this each day. And we start getting a clearer picture, I think, of a way to be more tangibly present to what's happening to us without getting confused and thrown about on the surface of things and to be present like that. And um, so with that then, I, I uh, invite us into a sit-in meditation. And in sitting in meditation, I would like to suggest we could do two things with this, really. Uh, not just for a few minutes, but during the week if you're so inclined. To reflect on this, this way. The kind of the spaciousness of it. And what does it say to you like this? A reflective prayer. Take the word as a lexio. Or you, you, we, you could take it as a contemplative prayer, like a word, repeat a word. And so the word might be, Lord, that I might see you in all that I see. 
Lord, that I might see you in myself, that I might see you in each person I see on the TV and the news. Lord, that I might see you in all that I see and see the truth of things and not get confused by appearances so that I can be present to all of this in a more grounded, real, vulnerable, and patient way. And uh, so in that spirit then, um, I invite you to sit straight and fold your hands in prayer and bow. Repeat after me, and here, by the way, we might add too, see, be still and know that I am God. This is the stillness. See, the stillness of the turning world is this quiet stillness of the, of the axis, see, uh, which is the stillness that, that heals us from spinning out to the edge and uh, losing contact with the love that alone is real. Be still and know that I am God. So then in this repeating after me, then in the Psalms, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am. Be still and know. Be still. Be. say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom the power and the glory, now and forever. Amen. Mary, Mother of Contemplatives, pray for us. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us. St. Mary Magdalene, pray for us. Blessings to all of you. And so now here along with me in the sharing of this session with you is um, uh, Kirsten Oates, who's my kind of my point person with CAC, kind of keeps an eye out for me. And um, so we're here kind of together with this offering for you. And so now she's going to ask me a couple of questions or we're going to engage in a little dialogue with each other and hoping that it'll help you kind of, kind of fine tune some of your own insights and so on. So um, yeah, Kristen, so yes. Mm, thank you, Jim. What a beautiful reflection. They're just wonderful. Um, and I, I've heard a lot of your teaching and I hadn't heard that one before, so it was really powerful to, to listen to it. Uh, I had a couple of questions. One was around um, uh, 
just uh, really resonating and identifying with when you use the word powerless and the chaos of the tomb so that Mary felt powerless and also when she entered the tomb, that sense of chaos, not knowing what had happened, powerless to know, powerless to do anything. And um, it really did resonate for me with um, the current situation and that in this moment, that sense of all that I thought was stable and tangible and in place feels in a, in a state of chaos and I feel very powerless over that. Yes. This is my, this is my sense of it. I think it's really where two dimensions of our lives touch each other. Let's say one level of our life, which we could speak of as our experience of ourself in ego consciousness. And I say this now in terms of, of psychology, of mental health, that we all need a basic sense of self-efficacy. We all need a certain sense that we, we are endowed with certain capabilities and we can seek to um, actualize those capabilities. And one of those capabilities is to keep our safe, keep ourselves safe and those we love and care about safe and have some active role in helping other people in the world do the same. This is important for all of us. And, um, and that, sometimes I think actually as we go through adult life, we get trained in a certain field to help make some kind of contribution to the human enterprise, to that kind of thing. And a lot of the meaning of our life is found in that. And that's important. That's really important. But if that's our base of operation, that is that has the final say in who we are, then when we run into moments where we lack self-efficacy, that is, we're not, we, we can't find within us the resources to rise to the occasion, and if our sole base of operation is our own abilities, then it creates this crisis within ourselves. Now, at the human level, what we're to do when that happens, which is a traumatized state, is we need to get help. Within ourselves, through prayer, another person, whatever it is, we need to get help to, to recalibrate again, to get our footing so we can go on and figure out what happened. And this, we call, you can call that the field of mental health if you want, just or physical health, whatever. But there's something else here at stake, is that these feelings of powerlessness, while they're very fragile and that they can be quite overwhelming, are also moments that they touch a deep truth about ourselves. And one simple way to put it would be this. Uh, to, to be at the deathbed of a dying loved one, it becomes tangibly clear that our next breath belongs more to God than to us. Just as we did not have the power to bring ourselves in existence, we don't have the power to keep ourselves in existence. Breath by breath, heartbeat by heartbeat, it doesn't lie within our power to generate our next heartbeat, to generate it. It's, it's, it's a perpetual granting. So somehow, uh, the moment of powerlessness, where it falls away, is a moment where the ego is trying to get its balance. But instead of rushing to reinstate itself, it can see that as a moment of potential transformation, of being unexplainably sustained by a power that's sustaining it in its powerlessness. See? And once we've tasted that amazing grace, see, amazing grace, then I, I think then that's a transformative, that's like the depth dimension of the healing encounter. And that allows us then to return to the fray, like to return to the challenging task of love ask of us, but grounded in a love that's not dependent or a peace that's not dependent on the outcome of our efforts because we taste it directly for ourselves, the invincibility that sustains us in our fragility. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so I, I, I think those perspectives I, I find helpful. That's so helpful, Jim. And the moment in the story where Jesus says her name, Mary, yeah. and you feel that sense of the rush of grace. I was always here. Yeah. I, I, I never left you. I, yeah. 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 And, uh, and that she kind of, you feel her sense of um, reinstating that sense of yeah. Jesus and grace and it's true. connection. Yeah. It's, it's like joy. It's, it's a deep joy of um, a, a kind of an ultimate identity who she invincibly is in that love, see? and they're one in that, and that's, that's, that's the joy of the encounter, yeah. 
Another question I was really struck by the angels asking Mary, why are you weeping? And um, and you, you reflecting on how often we don't know why we're crying until someone offers us the gift of asking us. And I feel like in today's society, um, crying isn't the norm. We're, we're kind of taught not to cry or to hide our crying right. so that we may need another question for friends and family and people we're in relationship with because we might not see them weeping. So what what might that question be is, Jim, do you have suggestions like maybe uh, what are you sad about or what are you struggling with? Well, I think that and I want to speak now as a therapist, I guess, too, just as a human being, but also then, they, then I want to apply the faith dimension to it. You know, let's say if you come to me and you share with me um, what you're afraid of. Uh, I call it coming out from behind the curtain to risk self-disclosure. Because if you share with me what you're afraid of, you're sharing yourself with me. You're sharing yourself with me. And therefore, you have to trust that I'm someone who's safe to be with in that way that I risk sharing what hurts the most in the presence of someone who will not invade me nor abandon me. And then knowing that I'm not alone in my pain, it can help me not to invade or abandon myself. I can kind of learn to be there for myself in my pain. So that's one thing. We're always respecting the vulnerability and the privacy of each person. We don't. We can't go barging in. It has to be an invitational stance of no and sometimes we're, we're capable of being there and they're not ready yet so we have to let them not be ready yet you know it's life it's just that so anyway we're sensitive to those dynamics like that and we're also sensitive to ourselves like what is it that's weighing on us and where could i find someone to share what's troubling me you know there's some like an unresolved matter and where can i find and so that's how we, we help each other out hopefully it's tricky because sometimes we're the ones that are hurting each other. We're the ones who aren't safe. So we're trying to navigate our way through a complicated world. And we're trying to be someone who's not part of the problem by being a nonviolent, nurturing, attentive person. But there's something else then we would say what it is. Is that, see, I'm, I'm weeping. I'm not, it isn't that I'm weeping because I, I've lost this person or that thing, or I'm scared. I'm worried about, and and we and, and maybe I I should weep. There's something. It's a huge loss. There's a lot to weep over. But what we're suggesting here, the deep weeping, arises from the traumatized capacity of knowing that I'm unexplainably sustained, come what may. So that even up to, and including the moment of my death and beyond, I am sustained. And so my real weeping is, although I know the poetry of that, I've not yet found the way to habitually abide in that. And so that's it. But that weeping we bring to God. And the weeping we bring to God. I like the cloud of unknowing. He says, uh, uh, the, excuse me, the ladder of monks. We go this thing. And uh, he said, what we do in, in deep prayer, uh, we become, we feel a deep longing for this oneness with God. And we realize we're powerless to consummate it. But then we realize we become unconsolable. But then we're consoled in the grace of being unconsolable. Because otherwise, we'd say, you know, Lord, I think I can get along without you as long as I have my flat screen TV or as long as I get my job back. And God goes, really? <laughs> and, then, and then he says, what happens? We cry out to God mid-sentence. And then God unexpectedly crosses the line and consummates what we're powerless to consummate, which is the unitive experience. So uh, I think it's sad that there's, there, there's the interactive gentleness with each other, helping each other out. We're all in this together. But then the taproot feeds all of our fears, which is the prayer, the deep faith prayer, grounds us to be present to that in a more viable, I think, enriched way, I think. That's so helpful. Thank you. Jim, I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share with our listeners how this last week has been for you and if you've done anything specific to take care of yourself. Uh, yes, so I've done several things. <clears throat> One, I've continued <clears throat> to do what I found helpful, 
And um, that is, I, 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 I reached it. It's really not true that I hate being here without Maureen here. I hated it. Uh, it's not true anymore. Mm. I deeply dislike it, mm. <laughs> but I don't hate it. <laughs> Big difference. It's a huge difference. And I realized the reason I dislike it but don't hate it, because if I hated it, I would hate reality. Mm. And this was in the deal going in. When we got met, met each other and all this kind of, this was, this was the deal going in. And knowing that uh, she got to go first because she didn't want to live without me, it's a love offering I gladly give, and I'll be dead soon enough myself. And I'm, my two daughters call me. I'm in touch, CAC, Faith Community for me. And so I, I really, I sit here in this kind of beautiful place we've lived in for all these years, like a hermitage, and uh, look out at the ocean, uh, you know, the way of the widower. Mm. And, and, and it's a time for me, I think, to come to a certain kind of clarity, you know, a certain kind of like layer of the teaching that I could, some things you, we can't simply teach until we've arrived there. Mm. Otherwise, it's just words. And so I, it's, th it's things like that that have helped yeah. me. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. It's it's very touching to hear this journey in real time, and yeah, uh, yeah it's it's really yeah. helpful. And, and I would say too this about the pandemic. I say this too as a therapist. It's always good to remember we see it in general. You hear the stats on the news, but to realize that every person traumatized in the pandemic is a trauma pandemic pain, this energizing, deeply personal pain mm -hmm. that each one of them is going through. There's always that to keep in mind in terms of holding these people in prayer, keeping ourselves in prayer. It's always, you know, it's innermost mm -hmm. to all of us. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Well, uh, one thing I wanted to share that I did this last week, um, this was an idea that came from our fabulous producer, Corey. Um, we were having a chat and he was sharing how uh, he was uh, paying for his services uh, even though he wasn't receiving them. So n not paying ahead or not just paying for them as if he was receiving them. And it's so funny when you're kind of trapped in your own little worlds and I hadn't thought of that. I, I mean, I'm just not getting my hair cut. I'm not getting my dog's hair cut. And uh, so just didn't even think of that. So... I reached out to an, a few different services that I normally uh, would be using on a regular basis and offered to, to pay for those services as if I was getting them. And um, similar to what you said last week, Jim, um, when we were talking about my doing, when I did the shopping for my neighbor, the, the, the gift of love and gratitude that flows between people and um who knows why I'm the one that still has an income and is in this position and why someone else isn't, but how can I um, use that gift to support others? And in, and then you find the gift yeah. is really... Yeah. 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 So thank you, Corey, for that fabulous idea. <laughs> oh, that's good. That is good. Um, before we leave, Jim, I've got a couple of... We've had just an amazing um, amount of beautiful emails from people who've been listening to the podcast. Your teaching, Jim, is really uh, resonating and impacting people in wonderful and amazing, helpful ways. Uh, so I just wanted to read a couple of those to you. Uh, you haven't heard these yet. So. Um, so one from Rose just says, I think an important point you raised today is the idea that what we do for others is mutually beneficial. Otherwise, we can fall into the trap of me, the helper, and you, the victim, the one who needs my help. It places me above somehow. And as someone who struggles with humility, this is tricky. I also really appreciate the reminder that what happens in this world, no matter how dark or how dark uh, it gets, it cannot overrule the light of God. I cannot visit my friends in the nursing home right now, and I am overwhelmed with pain and sadness that they are alone. Their basic needs may be taken care of, but who is bending down and talking to them, or listening to them, or just holding their hands? So I visit them in my mind and my heart. I imagine all the people who have, 
who have been or are now alone, and I join in with them. I cry and then I go on with my day. That's from Rose. I know your uh, daughter Kelly is one of those people and um, yeah. looking after people. She in is. And another layer of that for me, that last one about the nursing home, mm-hmm. is that uh, her, her daughter, my oldest daughter's daughter, she works in a nursing home. Mm. And because of the pandemic, family members are not allowed in. And so here's this young woman who sits with these extremely sad, and it gets to her. You know, mm. she comes home. How do I handle this? And it, that touches me because I, I identify. See, I think when we love someone, it gets the reality gets through. <clears throat> mm-hmm. That had I died first, and I could have when Maureen was going in her dementia, she would have been one of those people. Mm. At, I mean, just bereft, lost. And then when I think how many people are like that right now while we're speaking and how do i open my heart to the suffering of the world without being traumatized by the suffering of the world See, mm. how do i open my heart to that uh, i can't unless i sink the taproot of my heart in a love that sustains us in it and transforms it and all the more reason for the centrality of god's presence in prayer and, you know, mm. thank you, you know. jim and then this last one uh, really touched me when I read it. And Jim, today you talked about uh, seeing the deathless beauty in everyone. And this note comes from a mother who saw the deathless beauty in her son. And so I wanted to share it with everyone. Um, so it says, my son was in a car accident on December 30 and suffered a traumatic brain injury. He was in neuro ICU and conscious for a week. Then his body went into failure and he passed on January 20. He was 31 and a very strong, kind, gentle, loving, beautiful soul. It was a very traumatic experience for our entire family and all his friends who loved him very much. He was the light and joy of a mother's heart. Then the coronavirus happened. We had to close our family business. Life seems very surreal and strange. I shared my story because the podcast helped me open up to the process again of of leaning into my feelings. It gave me a perspective on the love of Jesus and God's presence and participation in our lives. I especially liked when James said, this is the view from the cross. That rang true for me. I've wondered if the grief and pain I am experiencing brings my son any sadness or pain. Someone shared that he is with God and feels only love and compassion for us who are grieving his physical, the loss of his physical presence. That brought me hope and solace. I feel my son's spirit. I believe his love, compassion and presence are encouraging me. I am grateful for this quiet time away from life as it was, and view it as a gift, a time of reflection and healing. I appreciate the helpful comments at the end of the podcast for self-care ideas. I've been doing many of those things, and it does help me to move through the day in a more peaceful way. Then she just says, thank you so much for what you're doing. (laughs) So... Thank you, Jim, again for today. I um, I hope you can hear that your sharing and your teaching is having a big impact on, on this community. We're grateful for you. And uh, we're grateful for hearing from people and how they're being touched. And I know I'm, I learned a lot from reading that yeah. um, letter about yeah. a mother and her son. Yeah, and like I was, when I was saying last time, when you give the woman the group, whatever, we help anybody. It blesses me too. I mean, it's so providential that I'm able to monitor without walls, kind of thing, through the internet. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. I'm able to sit here in my own home like this and share these things that have so changed my life, and so it gifts me. So goes around, comes around. Yeah, so I'm grateful. Jim, I wonder before we close, um, just to build on what you taught us today about. Uh, turning to interior prayer. Mm -hmm. 
I wonder if you might offer us a prayer to end our time together today. Yes. Lord God, we, in our fear, imagine that you're sometimes far off. Even though deep down we know that you're always closer to us than we are to ourselves. Sometimes we go about worrying so about how this is going to turn out. Even though we know deep down, ultimately speaking, that the ultimate victory of love over suffering and death is unexplainably assured. But we're just human. And you're with us, and you're one with us in the unresolved matters of our heart. Help us to be there for and with each other, that we might be sustained and grounded together in the love that sustains us in this and every situation. And we ask for this through your Son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Center for Action and Contemplation. We're planning to do episodes that answer your questions. So if you have a question, please email us at podcasts at cac.org or send us a voicemail at cac.org forward slash voicemails. All of this information can be found in the show notes. Please consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend who might be interested in learning and practicing with this online community. To learn more about the work of James Finley, please visit jamesfinley.org. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.